Hello everyone. You're listening to the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent project in support of European-level actions within the skeptical movement and run by individuals representing different skeptical groups from across the continent. This is a pilot episode. I'm your host Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts Jelena Levin and Pontus Bökman. Sziasztok! Привет всем! Hey, salut! Well, as you can hear, dear listeners, we are quite an international team uh, with three different native languages spoken by the rogues, Russian, Swedish and Hungarian. But, uh, of course, no need to be concerned as we are going to be doing this in English. Or at least we'll try. Let me tell you, though, what our goal is with this podcast. We want to support the skeptic movement in Europe and beyond by uh, providing a lively forum, a meeting place, if you like, uh, for skeptics from different countries with somewhat different cultural backgrounds and, of course, speaking many different languages, normally not understood by one another. We do know this is quite a challenge, but we are very determined and we count on your support and cooperation in spreading the word sharing our content and sending us info you think might interest others on the continent or elsewhere. We are also quite aware, however, that all three of us are pretty much unknown within the international community of skeptics, so it might be a good idea for us to start with our brief self-introductions. Guys, tell us about yourselves. Let's start with Yelena. Uh, where are you from? How did you get into podcasting and stuff? All right. So um, I'm originally from Latvia. I was born in Riga, which is the capital of Latvia, and lived there until I was 24. Um, and uh, after that, I moved to England. I've been living in England for 11 years now. Um, and um, I got really involved in podcasting and listening to podcasts and skepticism after listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe podcast, yeah. where uh, Susan Gerbig... Um, had a, uh, a spot and an interview and um, she was talking about the Gorilla Skepticism on Wikipedia project. Um, I was very interested, I got involved and I offered my uh, skills of translating uh, Wikipedia pages from Russian to English and fr uh, from uh, English to Russian and I met a lot of great people and uh, a few of those people um, I'm still really good friends with and now doing podcast, which is fantastic. Sounds great. What about you, Pontus? Well, hello. Uh, I've been active in the skeptic movement for about four years now. Uh, I'm vice president of the Swedish, Swedish Skeptic Society. Uh, I am arranging skeptics in the pub events and I'd like to give presentations in the local schools here in the city of Malmö in the south of Sweden, where I live. And uh, I also got into this through listening to podcasts, and I'm equally excited now to be part of one. Well, podcasts have been uh, part of my life for, for a long time, uh, too. And uh, I've been a skeptic for uh, basically all my life. Uh, but as a high school student, I came across 
um, the Hungarian skeptic movement, in which I got involved in, uh, in a in a short time uh, from then on, and um, I ended up becoming uh, one of the the board members of the Hungarian Skeptic Society. I'm a vice president uh, right now. And I'm also involved in um, Guerrilla Skepticism on Wikipedia, uh, which is a great project, I think. And uh, I'm the lead, uh, the team leader of the Hungarian team. And uh, I think we should interview uh, Susan Gerbic once. Uh, Let's uh, do that. She can, she can, she can uh, find some time for it. Well, guys, I'm very happy that we're doing this. I've been meaning to to, to start a podcast for for years now. And uh, the only the, the greatest problem when you don't want to be um, alone as a host of a podcast is to find the proper people, the right people to do it with. I was thinking for some time, actually, so maybe I could do a podcast. Maybe I could do a Swedish podcast, but in English so that we can reach out to other people. Uh, but then, you know, doing it alone. No, no. So, so when Andras... You know, I, I remember when you proposed it, you said, I have another project going on. And I said, yes, a podcast. And <laughs> that was it. We just clicked right away. And you were shocked, Yelena. <laughs> well, uh, for me, I was literally, uh, when you said um, after the European Skeptics Congress, I think we should do the podcast and we need like three people, three characters. And I'm just <laughs> looking for whatever. And um and I'm thinking to myself, well, yeah, I am somewhat of a character. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, no, you did say, uh, do, do you want to do it? And I, I, I was absolutely, I nearly like jumped. Well, I've tried to contain my excitement, but I was really excited. <laughs> yeah. um, but it will require a lot of work and support and hopefully um, listeners, followers. So let's, you know, let's hope it all works out. Well, I am also excited but a little bit worried too, to be honest. Um, of of course I am, because uh, we are standing on the shoulders of giants when it comes to making podcasts for skeptics. But uh, we're going to try not only to live up to the task, but also to add something to the movement. I hope we can live happily and cooperatively alongside uh, each other with those fantastic teams like the SGU, the Skeptic Zone, Skepticality, those guys at Skeptics with a K, the Reality Check, and other great podcasters. But something is very important to point out, something on which we are building our uh, own existence and where we think our niche could be. Uh, that is currently not being any European level representation of skeptics apart from the, the umbrella organization EXO, um, the chairman of which, uh, Gabor Rashko, by the way, is going to be on the show with an interview we recorded with him earlier. So, building on an already existing international community, we are trying to reach all those European countries that have so far not been heard from. Um, with a few exceptions here and there, of course, uh, thanks to the efforts of people like uh, Bridget Saunders in Australia, for example. But it is mind-blowing that at the moment we don't really know anything about what other skeptics in our neighborhood are doing, how bad the fight against pseudoscience is for them in their countries, etc. There are so many organizations in Europe Yet, we happen to know virtually nothing about one another's stuff. And that has to change. 
And for that change, we need an effective way of intercommunication. Exactly what we aim for with this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you want to follow uh, European skepticism today, you need to know Hungarian, Swedish, yeah. Finnish, Latvian, Russian, French. That That's not going to happen. So hopefully that's where we can contribute to bring it all together and, and make sure that people get awareness of what's happening in all the countries. Absolutely. So that's what we are trying to do, to be the bridge. Yes. Yeah. Indeed. The bridge for skepticism. So, what can you expect to hear in the show, dear listeners? Let's go through the lineup of segments we have prepared for you, most of which we intend to be regular ones. First of all, Jelena is going to share with us a piece of history relevant to the day on which this podcast is released, that is the 18th of November. Then we are going to be looking at a few news items from across Europe, followed by our pre-recorded interview with Gabor Roszko, president of the Hungarian Skeptic Society and chairman of the European Council of Skeptical Organizations. After that, we are going to be talking about a common misconception about skeptics in our FAQ segment. Coming up afterwards, Jelena's segment dealing with logical fallacies, where this time we're discussing the one called the slippery slope argument. Towards the end, Pontus will guide us onto the field of people being really wrong about something, and we'll finish the show with a true or false game, something we are all very excited about and we've all wanted to do since we started listening to other podcasts with similar segments. Now it's time for us to do it. Uh, this time Yelena brought some interesting items, so let's see which one of us passes her test. I do hope you're ready for the show. We are, so enjoy. Yelena, please tell us about a great person relevant to science and skepticism and born on the continent on this day, the 18th of November. All right. So on this day, when our first pilot episode is out, 18th of November, 1900, um, the um, Kistikovsky Georgi Bogdanovich was born in Kiev, um, who uh, was a, a Russian chemist. Uh, he worked on developing the first atomic bomb but later advocated banning nuclear weapons. He immigrated to the United States in 1926 and taught chemistry at Princeton University and then Harvard from 1930 to 1971. And he served as a special assistant to President Eisenhower for science and technology from 1959 through to 1961. As head of the explosives division of the Las Almas Laboratory during World War II, he oversaw 600 people developing explosives for the first atom bomb. The conventional explosives are used for its detonation to uniformity, compress the plutonium sphere and achieve critical mass. In 1977, he became chairman of the Council for a Livable World, which opposes nuclear war. So there we go. Say his name again, please. Kistikovsky Georgi Bogdanovich. Great. Wow. I, I think that. And then just to think to work at an explosive division, I think that's really great. Um, well, that's for physicists, I, I, I assume. 
Okay, so this was about history, and now what's new in Europe? So uh, one thing I would like to cover is that the uh, Swedish Skeptic Society recently published a study that investigated the attitudes of the Swedish public towards beliefs, conspiracy theories, uh, also medicine and health. So it, it, it's an interesting study. It confirms that Sweden is not the worst of countries when it comes to woo, but there are still some things that stand out. Um, one thing that has resonated most in the media was the fact that almost half of the people who sympathizes with the Sweden Democrats, which is a rather new ultra-nationalistic party, uh, recently getting around 18% of the, of the sympathizers in the, in the polls, almost half of them believes that humans can be divided into biological races which is a big difference from, from the average, which, which is around 20%. And, uh, but also 20%, I think, is quite high because uh, science is quite in agreement that uh, the variations in the, in the, in the human uh, genome is not big enough to warrant classifications into different races. There are other, other things that have been uh, investigated as well. 55% of the Swedes believes that GMO is dangerous to our nature. 40% believes that it's dangerous to eat GMO food. 38% uh, believes that electromagnetic sensitivity is a real disorder. Uh, one in four believes in life after death. And 21% believes in God, which it's probably a low figure internationally. No, but it's like so uh, so um, shocking in a way because yeah. I thought that Sweden way yeah. advanced and progressed and and GMO actually friend of mine who lives in Sweden and who is a very rational person otherwise was telling me how we should all avoid GMO products and I have tried to explain to her that every single fruit and veg she buys in the shop is genetically modified like apples like strawberries like everything and she just like looked at me and smiled like I'm you know being a bit weird and like you're the crazy one yeah. delusion that's right mm. and I just don't understand where it's coming from I think it's all scaremongering by you know yeah Yes, it is, and uh, and what it can build on is um, is the lack of knowledge about about uh, genetic and uh, genetical engineering and uh, genetics in general. So it's you, you just uh, don't tend to know anything about it. That is... There's some smaller things as well that it's interesting to look at. Uh, like six percent believe that the moon landing was a hoax. And that's a low number, but the interesting thing is that it's more common to believe when in the younger population. Hmm. Hmm. So, but I think we will, um, the, the Swedish skeptics are working on an English translation as well. So, uh, hopefully we can make more details uh, known across Europe. And in also, hopefully, we will see similar uh, investigations in, in other countries in Europe so we can start to, to benchmark or compare ourselves. Perfect, and that, that sounds good. And also, if the translation is done, then we can add it to the show notes. Um, in Absolutely, uh, yeah. I'd like to use this moment uh, to ask people from across Europe to contact us if uh, they possess the results of similar surveys in their own countries, because we would love to hear from you. Um, 
we would like to collect and be able to compare all the the similar kind of information from as many countries as possible. So please write us. Our email address is info at the esb.eu. But at the end of the show, uh, we'll announce all our contact information, or you can find it all on our website. So moving on. All right. So the uh, second uh, piece of news that I've got for today um, is to do with a French scientist. And uh, French scientists are preparing to wake up a 30,000-year-old giant virus. Um, a team from the French National Centre for Scientific Research discovered the prehistoric virus called uh, Molivirus Sibiricum um, underground in northeastern Siberian permafrost. And now they plan to give it its first wake-up call since the last ice age. The scientists will first check to ensure the virus is not harmful to humans or animals, and they hope studying it could increase understanding of ancient dormant viruses that may spread again in the future as permafrost retreats at the hands of climate change. Um, Molivirus Sibiricum, which translates as soft virus from Siberia, is classified as a giant virus because it is visible by light um, microscopy. Um, the same team of researchers discovered another giant 30,000-year-old virus called uh, Pithovirus Sibiricum last year in the same permafrost. A summary of their work said the fact that the two different viruses retain their infectivity in uh, prehistorical permafrost layers should be of concern in a context of global warming. Now, that could be a real explosion um, and um, problem for us in the future. I mean, we, we will get to obviously find out about it more, hopefully, um, as scientists check and test the virus. But um, as uh, as the ice melts and uh, the viruses get exposed, it could really cause a lot of chaos in the world. So there we go. This is fascinating. Imagine the permafrost being exposed in the next few decades yeah. uh, at, a, at, at, at an accelerating rate. And of course, um, many times it is mentioned that methane is being emitted uh, at, at, at accelerating rates because of melting of the permafrost. But this comes with a lot of other things as well that have been in the ice uh, within the permafrost. That is fascinating, and so many things are gonna be found uh, when when these things, these places, these areas are melting. Yeah, you, you you're used to thinking about mammoths yeah. being being uncovered, but 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 viruses. That, yeah. And 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 also, I'm 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 wondering, is it dangerous? Is it something we should worry about? Uh, well, I think this is might be one of the concerns. I, I know it's not, uh, you know, maybe specifically um, spelled out in the article. There was also a thing that before they were going to activate it, they they were going to explore if it was dangerous or not. Was that true? Yes, that's and right. Yeah. How can they that's do right. that? How can they do that before they they activate it? Hmm? Well, it's a good question to <laughs> French. French scientists from the National Center for Scientific Research. Mm, we should have mm. one on our interviews. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have quite a lineup of, of, yeah. of <laughs> planned But interviews I think that so would be so a fascinating follow-up. Fascinating. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. 
The, um, there is something I want to mention uh, from European skepticism that is a very important um, event that, that was happening uh, very recently. And uh, that was uh, the Skepsis Congress 2015 on the th uh, 31st of October 2015. Guys, Dutch people really have a style. They, they do a Skeptics Congress a National Skeptics Convention on the day of Halloween. How cool is that? Go Dutch people! Yeah, and right. uh, and they even cooler than that because they had um a, quite a lineup of of um, of uh, speakers, and uh, they made it an international event in terms of having having um, um Dutch speakers and having Chris French. Uh, mm. from the Goldsmith College, London. Uh, all of, all of us know, know, know who Chris French is. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, especially because the very event where, where the idea of, of this podcast, uh, came to life, um, was organized, uh, by, by Chris French and Michael Heap. We're going to try and report from events like that in the future, as uh, well as promote them in advance. So, if you have something going on or in preparation we should mention on the show, please write to us at info at the ESP.eu. So let us be the bridge we aim to be. On every episode, we interview a person representing an organization or project, either from a certain European country or stretching across borders. And on this episode, we interview Gabor Roshko, a biologist and IT consultant, also a president of the Hungarian Skeptic Society, chairman of the European Council of Skeptical Organizations, also known as EXO, a birdwatcher, a flight simulator pilot, and recently, he got into the advisory board of one of the most prominent skeptical organizations in the world, CSI, the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry. Gabor, welcome. Thank you. Um, first of all, could you could you tell us a bit about uh, you and the goal of um, of the organization you're you're running in Hungary? You know, th that was the big political changes in all of our region here, and uh, and with that, a lot of things has changed. And pseudoscience just arrived to Hungary in a, in a month or two, and. Uh, it's not just we have to uh, we have to debunk things, but we have we have to somehow try to uh, try to teach the people how to how to uh, think scientifically, and uh, that's how I started to write uh, scientific articles in magazines in Hungary here, and that's how it all started. And then I was invited to uh, a party, a conference uh, in your hometown, Andras, in Székesfehérvár in Hungary where there was a big meeting of skeptics. And at that time, I didn't even know what skeptics meant, in fact. Uh, there I met those people who formed this whole um, project here in, in Hungary. At that time, it was not the skeptic societies. It was a more informal group of uh, scientists, mainly. This was very important, I think, it, it, in, in the whole history of skepticism in Hungary. The problem was that uh, that it was not really open to the public not it was not open to uh, to citizens who were not scientists themselves and that's why we started uh, organizing a formal society 
which became the Skeptic Society in Hungary. Interestingly, we started it together with uh, with part of the atheist movement, and we uh, started to work together. But uh, rather soon, we realized that though both things are important, but the strategies should be different. Um, I found uh, ourselves in a, in problems in several times when we started to discuss scientific. Uh, problems or, or how science relates to pseudoscience. And then uh, the debate very soon uh, went into a direction that, oh, yes, because uh, we don't believe in God. And and that's just diverted the whole topic. And that's why we, uh, we separated these two movements in Hungary. And uh, now the uh, skeptical movement, the skeptic society itself, is dealing with the, is dealing not with the philosophical aspects of uh, of uh, naturalism but uh, but the the scientific naturalism which means that we are for the uh, method the scientific method and and uh, we are investigating everything where someone is stating something regardless whether it's from coming from a religious uh, thought or or from a pseudo scientific idea uh, whatever can be investigated we are going for that. Uh, we have even now a regular regular show in, in one of the radios every month. We have some one and a half hour discussions uh, uh, with the, the show owner. So uh, he is very much interested in what we are doing. And, and it's a very free discussion of, of funny things and serious things. And we are inviting even uh, outsiders who we, who we believe uh, uh, could, uh, can say interesting things about science and, uh, and pseudoscience. And of course, we, have, uh, we are participating in conferences. We are starting our own conference. And G- Gabo, how big is the Hungarian Skeptic Society? Do you know how many members you've got? I should know, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's 100 people right now. And the relationship with the atheist uh, organization is that did you, you know, depart as friends or are you in competition or do you have a lot of overlap between the members and how, how's that working? It's not a competition at all. The, this divorce was um, partially friendly, partially not. But, uh, uh, but I think there is a good uh, relationship and, uh, and some of us are participating in, in uh, both uh, movements. So, um, Gabo, um, apart from being the president of Hungarian Skeptic Society, you're also chairman of the European Council of Skeptic Organizations. EXO is, is an umbrella organization. So uh, it is not something like a real big formal organization, uh, which has a very strictly speaking uh, um, member organizations, which we direct or organize. We try to help to facilitate the, the communication between the organizations. The major things what we are doing is that we are facilitating we are facilitating these two years uh, conferences, European congresses. But but for example, we don't have a, a, a newspaper, we don't have a, a real live web page at the moment. That's why I'm partially very happy with your initiation of this podcast, but because this is practically one important thing how the European uh, skeptics organizations could uh, work together. Communication among the groups is not good, definitely. And we have a lot of uh, lot of things, common things, what we have to deal with uh, on a European level. So, for example, uh, it's obvious that uh, 
that alternative medicine uh, guys are and, and companies are are lobbying on on the EU level, for example, and uh, and it's simply it's impossible to deal with that only on a national level. But this is the same with a lot of other things, uh, which which is about uh, consumer protection, for example. At the moment, we are trying to put together again or refresh our database of the skeptical organizations and figure out who are the acting leaders, because you know. Leaders are up and down, uh, they change their job, they are busy and then disappear. There are sometimes that a complete country disappears from the skeptic map in, in uh, Europe because the guy who was leading that uh, changed the job and then practically the whole society is gone. So that's why we try to refresh this. And once we are there, and I hope that in the next months we'll be ready with this refresh database, then we will initiate new networks. I very much hope that that rather soon we will have at least a group dealing with alternative medicine, how to deal with it in in uh, in uh, on a European level, and and most probably there will be some other initiations as well. For example, GMO could be a very interesting new skeptic topic. Uh, which should be dealt on on a European level, or of course global warming and energy issues. There are a lot of things what we should do. Uh, the one thing that EXO is mostly famous for is the, the European Skeptics Congress. Can you tell us a little bit about what you felt was the highlights from the from the latest uh, Congress in, in in London in September, and also the plans for the next uh, Congress coming up? Uh, well, I think. I think each congresses are, are totally different. So uh, the in in London now, I learned a lot. Uh, I think I think the the British people are, are working totally differently than than others in in the, how they call it in the continent. Uh, what I see is that in our countries in in uh, in uh, the continental Europe, we tend to create our national organizations. Now in, in, uh, in England and in, in Scotland and, and there in, in, uh, uh, in their areas, they are making a lot of grassroots type of activities. If, if there are three people, then they call themselves skeptics of this city or the other city. And it seems that they are working totally independent of each other. They, they can do very nice things. And if there is something like a national important stuff, then they just organize it together. And, uh, and I think that's a brilliant idea. And I, I don't know how to, to use it somewhere, but I, possibly I don't have to use it in Hungary because we are a small country. But but I think we can learn about it when we try to run EXO. So that that's really gave me a push that we, we mustn't think about EXO as, a, as, some, as an organization which is trying to coordinate or direct uh, member organizations, but somehow we should we should learn how the British organizations are working together. So uh, it was quite easy for them to find good uh, uh, lecturers uh, there. And and uh, for example, I I don't I didn't even believe that I I would be interested in lectures about fairies because I mean I, I was never interested in that. But I mean just to hear such a wonderful lecture about fairies. I mean, I was amazed about that. So that, that was very interesting. So it was a brilliant uh, Congress, I guess. The next one, uh, hopefully, will be in uh, uh, with, a, with a joint organization between, between the Polish and the Czech skeptics. 
That's very interesting. The Polish skeptics are quite a new organization. They are starting to organize themselves uh, for several years already, but this is still a small group. The Czech skeptics are, are a good old traditional important group, but they somehow disappeared for a while from the international level. And, uh, and hopefully they will now reappear here. And, and uh, as they are really a, a, an old traditional skeptic group, I, I think they will organize together a, a very good Congress somewhere in, near the border of, of Poland and, and Czech Republic. But this is, this is very much in a, in a preparational phase yet, and there was not even a formal confirmation. So we are trying to push them and they are happy or eager to do that. But uh, but uh, a real formal advertisement will come later about that. But th- this will be two years from now. So Michael Mar- Marshall did the um, overdose campaign back in 2011. Yes, and um, I believe that Hungarian skeptics took part. How did yeah, it? Yeah, get- I'm a, I'm a four-year survival. Yes. <laughs> so. Uh, that, that was a very good uh, st- uh, initiation, of course, and, and as you mentioned, it was coming from one member organization, so and, and only uh, it based on a, a few people. And uh, that shows that, that these things should start in this way. What we can do on a, a European level is that we try to just to put together these people, or just to, to say that he, he is the guy who is doing the same thing in the other country. But we are producing a lot of very interesting materials in in different languages, in Hungarian, in German, in Swedish, in in English, of course. And if we could somehow organize a a team which which is just translating these materials, um, then then it would be a great help. And the idea is that, because this this is already a a larger project, the idea is that maybe we will start a small, um, maybe internal or semi-internal, Uh, um, place in, in somewhere in the internet where we put together these uh, articles but just the abstract of these articles and just describe the title in English for example and, and uh, in one or more sentences uh, the, the topic and we add the contact person so if someone is saying oh this guy is working here in Hungary about this topic then can contact that guy and then they can discuss that they should translate it into German or, or something like that. A table of contents, what, uh, what is happening in, in Europe, that would be interesting. What do you think, in your opinion, are the biggest challenges of um, your skeptic movement uh, in Hungary and indeed across Europe? Uh... It is changing. Uh, it was very interesting for me to see how the topics, the basic themes uh, were changing in this whole movement. It seems it started with the UFO and astrology, which means that a lot of uh, astronomers were involved and, of course, uh, uh, the paranormal. And, uh, and then slowly it, it changed. And now I think one of the most important topics is definitely healthcare. Uh, and alternative medicine. I say healthcare because it's it's nutrition, you know, and all the all the false claims about uh, uh, about healthcare. It's not only alternative medicine. So that's definitely a huge topic, and and I think I don't have to mention that this is now about vaccines and that it causes real pain and and uh, death. So it's it's definitely an important one, and uh, and. I, I think the newer topics, what I mentioned already, uh, which we believe that they, they were not skeptical topics, but scientific topics, but now we see the same patterns. So that's why we have to enter 
is is uh, I think global warming and and especially in in uh, Europe I think GMO I think just recently uh, during the last days there was a big poll coming out about Europe and and it showed that uh, that uh, that people are very much against uh, the genet genetic modification so this technology so but in Hungary they put it even into the constitution that uh, that Hungary should be GM free which even affects the scientific research as well that that's I think a big challenge here in Hungary when when you asked uh, what are the challenges I said that in in one aspect uh, uh, I, I can answer it uh, uh, listing the topics but but in fact there is another challenge uh, which we face uh, to and that is how to make this whole job and and uh, I think the skeptical community uh, went through an evolution here as well because at the beginning we believed that it's just enough to ask for evidence and then uh, and then if we see the evidence then it's done and a, a great example of this is is uh, the James Randi one million dollar a challenge you know that okay just show your evidence and it's done but if we make enough tests there will be positive tests anyhow even if you test astrology even if you test the sea and 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 anything that's one thing and the other thing is that uh, that uh, more and more we learn that uh, uh, people are not rational animals so we are not rational animals so somehow we have to communicate in a way which helps them to accept what we would like to uh, teach them. So this is psychology, and we, we have to learn that part of, of stuff. And, and by the way, it, it teaches us a lot about how we believe, how we per perceive the information, how we change our minds. That's very important, and I think uh, skeptics should learn about that. And, and somehow we have to facilitate that in, in an international level as well. But do, do you believe that we are not using, uh, the other side, if we put it that way, are using a lot of emotional arguments? Is that something that skeptics should also do to win people well, over because science is rather boring and well, dry? That, that's, the, uh, that's the funny thing, that, that, uh, that you, you already said that the other side is using a lot of emotions. We are using a lot of emotions as well. And, and that's partially good and partially bad. Of course, we have to safeguard ourselves as well, that, that we are really thinking rationally. I think we have a, a bigger practice on that. And that's, that's what our hobby, not that, that we are trying to figure out how to avoid uh, the traps. Uh, but on the other hand, yes, I think we should use emotions. We, we, we should use go good stories. Uh, but of course, we should be very careful uh, uh, that that our stories, our emotions are, are are based on facts. I mean, what what we know, and and it's not uh, tricking the people, you know. That but but we are just using them to easier accept what we are explaining. I mean, the easiest example is that that you could have the best uh, best evidences, but if you start with the wrong sentence, then the other party will immediately shut down listening to you. You could have the best evidence they will not understand. If you start a bit hmm. trickier, let's say with, with a nicer story, not so hard, uh, then then they remain hopefully open and, and maybe they will listen to you. 
I can't not to mention that that I'm very happy with some very good sci-fi movies of the last uh, uh, year. That that I think it's quite amazing that for several years, uh, you know, the science guys were the bad and dangerous guys in the movie, movies, not. And and now during the last years there were three. I think excellent movies, uh, the Gravity, for example, and and, and all are, are different. So the Gravity is one, the other is the Martian, of course, that's the third one. But the Interstellar, oh yeah, uh, all, all are different movies. But but I mean, let's see that that their science is the core, and the science is quite accurate there, and and uh, and and the scientific guys are the good guys generally. So I mean this last one, the Martian. You know, I mean it's it's an anthem, I think, for for science. So the guy shows that yeah, yeah a love letter <laughs> to science. So I watched the the movie with with my family. I mean with my two daughters and and my wife who are not scientists at all. And I was a bit afraid that of course I would love the movie, but what about them? And you know it's a uh, hundred and forty minutes or so. So and and they were. All amazed, they enjoy the film, and and uh, and I think this is this is a great achievement that now science is again a, a real core of of good movies. That's that's really a very interesting thing, and that moves people emotionally, and, and it might change their views how they they see science. So that that's very important, I guess. Uh, we talked a lot about your, your activism and, and you actually involved in quite a few things in Hungary. Um, uh, but what advice would you give to somebody who is kind of on the fence, skeptical and wants to get involved into the movement but don't know how to and where to start? Well, at least there used to be a, a problem that uh, that many people believe that uh, to be part of this movement, they have to be scientists or they have to be very knowledgeable in, in one area or other. And and I think it's not necessary. So at, at first, uh, at first, there are a lot of things what they can do without that prior knowledge. But on the other hand, this is a very good way to get that knowledge in, in one or other area. So what uh, I, I can tell to these people that maybe they will not be uh, very much advanced in, in uh, medicine, for example, or in, in physics or chemistry, but but they can learn something in this community, which is at first interesting and fun, but on the other hand, what is really unique. So uh, uh, that that we really learn what are the uh, logical uh, fallacies what are the different wrong and good argument types? How to spot whether something is is is, is bullshit or or good science? And and in fact, even scientists are sometimes very bad at that. So some someone could be a, a real good scientist with 40 years of of practice in science, but still can uh, can totally be fooled in a bit other area what, what uh, than his own. I think everyone can put there something, a, a, a small brick to the wall, you know, that what they can add to this. And uh, and this is all valuable. But I think the most important thing is that even if they are not doing that, this is a great fun. So you don't have to think about this as a fight against something. And um, where can our listeners go online to find out more about your work as a skeptical activist? Uh, 
I think Hungarians will easily find me, but and, and for others should possibly find their own or, or groups in in uh, in their own country. But but I think it's not difficult to find a skeptic. So skeptics are very open. So just comment and uh, type in my name or type in uh, the name of other skeptics and write them, and uh, and uh, most probably they will write you back on the same day, and then you you could be immediately part of this community. So it's not a problem. Skeptics are everywhere. Well, I think that wraps up our um, interview with uh, Gabor Rashko. Thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you. And thank you. Thank you very thank much. You. Let's take a look at some of the frequently asked questions or claims made regarding skeptics or skepticism in general. So I'd like to start um, on the first show with the claim that skeptics are against the freedom of choice. Mm. Oh, yeah. Well, this is something that we are often accused of only by being against those who make fraudulent claims and thus tricking people into making decisions based on false information. But in reality, we are all for the freedom of choice. We are all for the, the, the educated choices that people should make. So we would like to, to equip people with the means to find out whether they are being fooled or they are being provided with the proper information that they can base their decisions on. We want to go against fraudulent claims, not because we want to ban anything. We are no, all for freedom of choice. We're, we're for informed freedom of choice. You need to know before you can make your decision. That, exactly. That's what I think. Yeah. That is exactly yeah. the case. So. Agreed. Okay. Good. And what about the logical fallacies that people can make? Because those are, can be problematic as well, not only misinformation. What do you think, Yelena? Before I start, um, I just would like to outline what logical fallacies are. And these are arguments where the conclusion does not follow from the premise. Um just to know that when logical fallacies are used in the argument, they don't automatically void the point of the argument. However, one has to be mindful of them. And today we will explore a logical fallacy called slippery slope. This is a conclusion based on the premise that if A happens, then eventually through a series of small steps through B, C, X, Y, Z will happen to basically equating A and Z. So if we don't want Z to occur, A must not be allowed to occur either. Um, the slippery slope is a series of statements that have a superficial connection with one another and which lead into what is often a rather far-fetched conclusion. Um, and the slippery slope is particularly obvious in its lack of real reason, yet it appears surprisingly often. It is often used in emotional situations where careful thought is replaced by an irrational need to, um, for a logical proof and justification. This fallacy is often used by politicians and church leaders. This is probably because they tend to be risk averse and the slippery slope seem like a good way of pointing out dangers, i.e. it long all end in tears. So, um, for example, 
um, as with the recent um, development, uh, with, with for example, with so many uh, countries and um, in, in America, in so many states, gay marriage is now became legal. And some people, especially especially uh, some church leaders, um, are crying out and saying, well, if we allow gay people to marry, then people will marry dogs and cats and other creatures. And of course, this is complete and utter nonsense. Um, and another example uh, for, I can use is um, to do with the uh, uh, cars, big cars, hammers. Um, so if we ban hammers because they are bad for the environment, eventually the government will ban all cars. So we should not ban hammers uh, because hammers are, are, you know, use a lot of petrol and they environmentally unfriendly. So um, yeah, and what do you think, guys? I mean, do you yeah. have you got your I, own examples of this? Um, and yeah, I think it's a very cheap argument uh, that often gets uh, touted, as you say, very often by politicians, like saying so. If you ban certain kinds of very dangerous handguns, then eventually every handgun is going to be banned and that's not true you 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 can ban certain kinds of weapons and allow others if you want to there's nothing that really says that you have to go all the way speaking of being right or wrong pontus you're going to be telling us about someone who has been really wrong Yes, yes. Today's prize for being really wrong will go to Norway. But, well, not all of Norway, but to a specific journalist there called Nils Christian Gilmuiden. And I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name, but uh, I think he's not exactly sure of what he's talking about all the time either, so I'll let that pass. So this Gilmuiden is a debater and a writer, and he has written books about how dangerous it is to eat different kinds of food. Uh, he is a self-appoint health expert and he argues that there should be warning labels on a lot of food like the ones that we have on cigarettes. He also maintains that those warnings are not there because the Norwegian government is in the pockets of big food. Uh, I, I'm surprised he didn't say Big Mac. He was uh, recently interviewed in one of the major Norwegian tabloids called Aftenposten. And in his interview, he was promoting his latest book. Uh, and among other things, he goes on to say, Nobody tells you that when salmon has been eating pig's food for 10 years, it gradually turns into a pig. He also goes on to say that we need authorities to say that our salmon has turned into hot dogs. <laughs> so if we believe this guy, I guess salmon in Norway is now going oink oink. But that's really not how it works. And... Um, I think he's taking the you are what you eat, uh, Monica, to um, an absurd level. <laughs> yeah, That is so, nice. Yeah, That's really pretty nice. ridiculous That is indeed. nice. I, I really pictured him. Um, <laughs> so, that, so that, small that, hot dogs swimming in the, in the, in the fjords. <laughs> no, I prefer, I prefer the pigs ones. Um, oh, the pigs. <laughs> so it's just yeah. flapping with their, with their little fins. <laughs> And, the the and fins of the pig? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The okay. pig fins. fins um, it's now a thing. Now it's it's now becoming a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, no, but he has, you know, he is is probably quite a writer because the first book has a very catchy title. It's it's the truth on the table, which I I quite oh, kind of like. Oh, it's catchy. Come, okay. That's a good good title. But I think 
The second book, the one he's now promoting, tells us a little bit more about where he gets his inspiration. Because the new book is called The Truth in the Glass. Okay. So, he, so he's probably been drinking a little. So I <laughs> want to give a shout out to our colleague uh, Marit Simonsen on her blog at uh, skeptic.no. So, Nils Christian Gildmuiden of Norway, congratulations. You got it really wrong. Coming up, the segment we've all been waiting for, true or false. I believe, Yalala, you have some interesting items to share with us to see whether we can guess which ones are true and which one is the false. Fire away, Yalala. All right. So um, in today's true or false, um, I will mention two true headlines and one false headline from the newspapers and... Pontus and Andres will have to guess which one is fake and um, obviously which were true. Here we go. Um, the headline number one. The Vatican purchases Europe's largest gay sauna. <laughs> okay. okay, good one. Go on. <laughs> the, the headline number two. In Spain, the local government will send the dogs excrements to the dog's owners. Okay. <laughs> the headline number three. In Russia, the new orthodox priest spacesuit was developed. Awesome. No. Awesome. Okay, guys. Uh, awesome. Um, Very good. Okay, guys. Um, what do you think about those? Um, Pontus, would you like to go first? Okay. So, the Vatican purchases Europe's largest gay sauna. That sounds too crazy to be true. Uh, that uh, unless they do it to stop gay people to go there, I, I can't see anything else. So I, I don't know what to do about that one. In Spain, local government will send excrements of the dogs to the dog owners. Uh, that's also crazy, a little bit more believable maybe, because I think that people get quite upset about dog owners who do not clean up after their dogs. In Russia... The Orthodox priest spacesuit was developed. I think that's hilarious. I think that's really great. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm picturing now an Orthodox priest with a big helmet and and all the ah oh, oh it's hilarious. I hope that's true because that would be so fun. Uh, I'm going to go with the first one being wrong. I don't think Vatican has purchased the largest gay sauna in Europe. Excellent. All right. Um, thank you, Pontus. Um, what about you, Andres? Well, um, these are all great. Brilliant. Um, so first of all, I, I, I don't ha necessarily have a problem with the Vatican purchasing Europe's largest gay sauna. It might be referring to something of historic background. So it might be an archaeological um, remain that someone found. And uh, let's go to number two. The local government will send excrements of the dogs to the dog owners. This is hilarious if this is true. Uh, the, the, the first thing that came to my mind was the problem of how to decide, how to, in, how to, to actually... Um, identify the owners and of course um it's not gonna be by uh, 
doing DNA analysis or anything. So the <laughs> most the most um, obvious way to to do it would be CCTV cameras. That is that looks to me pretty feasible. And uh, as you mentioned, that um, people can get really pissed off by by dog owners who who don't clean up the dog's uh, uh, excrements. So that is, I'm pretty sure, uh, true. Number three, in Russia, the Orthodox priest space suit was developed. Well, I wouldn't be that much surprised. I just read uh, recently that an Orthodox priest blessed a rocket on the plane, on on the combat planes. So, well, from from that point, it wouldn't be too far away. But the other thing is that I don't see the point in sending an Orthodox priest into space. I do have a feeling that astronauts who go in space, uh, for even from Russia, uh, have a much more of a common sense than uh, relying on a priest. So I don't know. Uh, I want that to be to be false. So I'm gonna go with number three. So yeah, number three, Russian Orthodox priest spacesuit. It was not developed. All right. So you've made your choices. Um, Pontus, you're going with the um, gay sauna, mm-hmm. and Anders is going with the Orthodox priest spacesuit. Okay, so we'll take it in turn uh, because, well, there's no consensus, uh, so there's nothing to okay. lose. Here we go. So, uh, Vatican purchases Europe's largest gay sauna. Um, this is actually true. Um, told ya, told ya. But they didn't oh, do boy. it on purpose, of course. Um, the, <laughs> <I> mistake. <laughs> the Vatican seemed to get, to get itself embroidered in enough scandal. Well, we know what scandals they're referring to, that they'd be inclined to not create any more trouble for themselves, but they've done it again. And they had made a seemingly innocuous, albeit pricely, real estate purchase at 23 million uh, euros, only to find that the Rome apartment block block they bought contains Europe's largest gay bathhouse. (laughs) So they they bought the piece of real estate um, that turned out to be the Europe's largest gay bathhouse. Oh, um so like i said it, you know by mistake i know how do you spend 23 million on uh something on mistake yeah. Enough? yeah you have too much um, money then. okay mm-hmm. item number two um in spain local government will send uh, ex- uh, dog ex- excrements to the dogs or do- dog owners now this is um this is true this is the true true item from spain uh where the local government was trying to deal with uh the dog owners that weren't responsible enough so what they did, it wasn't the CCTV <laughs> controlled like like Andrew suggested. Um, they involved volunteers. So the volunteers would um, oh, follow gosh. the um, the dog owners who weren't picking up the um, the excrements, and they would start a conversation with them uh, and find out the dog's name and the breed and whatever. And then because this local uh, place or, or the city in Spain, it wasn't that big. They could then um, go into that database and find out who the dog owners are, um, and you know, to take it from oh, that's, there. So that that's amazing. These would you volunteer for that? 
you may, <laughs> would you volunteer well, for the you, work? If you if you're particularly pissed off and you want to teach people a lesson, I can see you know young people. And you, you know, it's also a very very nice make work project. So it's um it's um well when parts 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 of uh, Spain are suffering from uh, from uh, um, unemployment problems. So yeah, you can generate you can ah. generate work by by asking for people doing that. Or oh, I'm if 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 it's done in a, on a voluntary basis, well that not, that it might not be the case then. But still. So um, and that leaves us in item number three in Russia, the Orthodox priest space. Yes. So this is this is the hoax. <laughs> uh, well done, Andres. Um, now this is pretty hilarious if you saw the picture of that suit that i've seen on the internet you would have known and you can actually google yourself orthodox priest space suit and when i saw it first it did it was posted online as a, as a true news item and then further on i was like reading up about it and i thought nah that can't be right and like you said pontus the silly hat <laughs> you know the, the big this is exactly what they did with it um and if I if I can find it, we can maybe post it in the in the in yeah. The, let's uh, put it in episode. the show notes. Yeah, yeah show notes. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't be surprised when Andres was discussing it. You know, he said you know the, the shuttles were blessed, whatever. I wouldn't be surprised if they did it. But luckily, they have enough common sense not to spend money on uh, Orthodox priest uh, space suit um, and try to, <laughs> to spend their money on something good instead. So nice. Thank you very much, okay, Yana. Good. This has been super right. fun. So, um to finish the the, the show, Yana, would you be so kind to give us a nice quote to finish with? Or absolutely, I, it would be my pleasure. And today's quote um came from Tim Minchin, a very well-known comedian, actor, director, um, music uh, writer and he said a famous bon mot asserts that opinions are like our souls in that everyone has one there is a great wisdom in this but i would add that opinions differ significantly from our souls in that yours should be constantly and thoroughly examined we must think critically and not just about the ideas of others be hard on yourself be hard on your beliefs, take them out onto the veranda and beat them with a cricket bat. Be intellectually rigorous, identify your biases, your prejudice, your privilege. Here we go, Tim Minjing. Yeah, it's a very, very good, good quote. quote. I like it a lot. And everyone yeah. should take it to the heart. Yes, and uh, I think that's something that skeptics also need to think about. We we need to to question ourselves a lot as well. Yes, we, we're very quick in questioning others and others other beliefs and um, uh, biases, but we very much very often fall into that um, trap of of thinking that we 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 are right because we know the best, or so we shouldn't. We should never rest. Absolutely not. Thank you very much. Thank you all. See Thank you, you next time. Bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. This has been your ESP experience, produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time. But until then, 
please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at theesp.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know as we are more than happy to help. All music bits in the program were written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast.eu and like us on Facebook. Sorry, guys. Is that fireworks? It is fireworks somewhere. No, really. Is that explosion of the Molivirus Sebericum outside? You are working at the explosive division. I do not know, but <laughs> you're going to be hating me by the end of the uh, 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 of, of this show. Both. Of I you. hate you already. Okay. <laughs> <great>. <laughs> Thank you for that.